Amen. Good morning again. Hope you all have had a great weekend. Enjoy the beautiful weather yesterday and today. Um, I should say also before we get started, it feels like I should, that today's Allie's birthday, so happy birthday to Allie. Today's also Annalise's birthday. If, if Annalise listens to this on podcast, uh, it's, it's her birthday, so happy birthday to her as well. And it's, it's uh, Ezra Groves' birthday, so it's a big day in the life of our church. <laughs> Yesterday morning, uh, it was good to see many of you all at our spiritual disciplines workshop that we, we had. And after enjoying some donuts and coffee, we spent our time thinking about how the Spirit of God uses these certain practices to form us and shape us into the image of Christ so that we would look more like Jesus. Not just that we would behave like Him, but that just as, as Jesus has always understood His identity to be someone who is infinitely loved by His Father, and so turns that love back to his Father in the bond of the Holy Spirit, our hope is that the Spirit would form us to be people who understand the depth of God the Father's love for us and people who love him in return. And we said yesterday, we mentioned that, uh, that going to church is a spiritual discipline. Uh, sometimes we think of, of spiritual disciplines as like something that you have to go live in a monastery by yourself to do. But many of them are things that we do together. And going to church is a really important spiritual discipline. We believe that the Holy Spirit uses our presence here and the ministry that happens here to conform us into the image of Christ. And the main way that he does that is through the ministry of the Word. This time, preaching time, is so formative, not because of my voice or any other voice that's up here, uh, but because the Holy Spirit's voice speaks through what he's spoken, through the Word. Sometimes we have a tendency to like divide the spirit and the word and think that some people are like Bible people, they're big Bible study nerds, and other people just like have this unique connection with the Holy Spirit where he speaks to them directly. We should not divide the word and the spirit like that. The regular operation of the Holy Spirit is to speak through what he has spoken, to form people into the image of Christ through his word, including through the preached word. So as we open the Bible today to Mark chapter 15, We're going to do that believing that the Holy Spirit is going to speak through what he's spoken and is going to continue to shape us to be more like Christ. Mark 15, I'll begin in verse 16 and read through verse 32. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus of Nazareth came onto the scene and he began preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That was week one for us as a church. It was week one in the Gospel of Mark, May 22nd, 2022. And we said in that sermon, and we've said many times since, that Mark wrote his gospel to answer three key questions. First, who is Jesus? Second, what did he come to accomplish? And third, how should we respond? And he answers those questions. He tells us Jesus is what? I've said this 500 times, so pop quiz. Jesus is the divine human king of God's kingdom. Good job, Jess, A+. (laughs) What did he come to accomplish? He came to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And third, how should we respond? By becoming citizens of the kingdom. But we've seen over and over and over again, haven't we, in Mark, that this kingdom that Jesus comes to bring is nothing like the kingdoms of the world. And that Jesus himself as a king is nothing like the kings of the world. The kingdom of God is in every way upside down from what we would expect. Jesus begins healing a bunch of people and they're all coming to him and he's getting famous and they're like ready to crown him on the spot and he says, no, 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 I need to go to the next town and preach. That's what I came for. He keeps his identity as a king secret. He tells people not to tell anybody. He starts saying crazy, borderline blasphemous things like, I forgive you of your sins. He becomes friends with big sinners, with prostitutes and tax collectors and people like that. He goes to and touches and heals ceremonially unclean people, lepers, demon-possessed graveyard dwellers, women with perpetual bleeding, dead people. He honors and sets up as models people who his contemporaries look down on, Gentile women, children, and the poor. He says that greatness is defined not by being served, but by serving others, and that he's going to set the greatest example of that on the cross. In every way, at every step along the way, Jesus has shown us that his identity is king, and the nature of his kingdom, and the nature of citizenship and life in his kingdom is utterly upside down from the ways of the world. And we come to Mark 15. This is the coronation of King Jesus. It's the culmination of all the upside-downness that we have seen throughout the Gospel of Mark. You may have noticed in your bulletin that I titled this sermon King's Cross. That's not a typo, uh, but of course that's the name of our church. And it's the central paradox of the Gospel of Mark that a king would die on a cross. The central paradox of the entire Gospel. The central paradox of our entire faith. And it's the paradox that's at the heart of what we believe and are called to live out as Christians. And if we see it rightly and clearly and come to understand that the King died on a cross, it will provide for us two things. First, salvation. And second, reorientation into a completely new way of living. The upside-downness of the cross is seen in five symbols 
in this chapter of Mark. Now, I want to walk a fine line here walking through this text because the gospel writers seemed far more concerned with the theological implications of the cross than with getting overly descriptive about the physical realities of the cross. Mark could have taken a lot longer to describe in detail what a crucifixion was like than he did. And so I want to I honor that and be faithful to that as a preacher. But on the other hand, the original readers of Mark are a lot closer historically to the concept of resurrection. Like they didn't need Mark to be super descriptive for them to be able to draw a crucifixion to mind. They would have seen in their mind's eye without a lot of help what it was like. So I also want to be faithful to that as a preacher. So I'm not going to dig into every single gory detail this morning, but I do want you to picture these events, to use your imagination and be an interactive listener. As I talk about these five symbols of the upside-downness of this coronation, draw them to mind even as I'm not describing them with a great deal of detail. The first symbol is that Jesus is given thorns for a crown. Verse 17, they dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. It's clear that the Roman soldiers, knowing the claims about Jesus as the so-called King of the Jews, are performing a mock coronation. What they didn't know, of course, is that it was actually a real coronation. Among the elements given to this king is a crown of thorns. Rather than a glorious, golden, bejeweled sign of honor and respect and praise, and keep in mind, this is already after Jesus has been flogged, so his back has already been torn open, he's bloody, he's probably barely able to stand, if at all. He's already a pitiful sight. Instead of a beautiful gold crown, he has an excruciatingly painful object of torture pressed down onto his head. Certainly the depictions of the thorn-crowned Jesus with blood running down all sides of his head are not an exaggeration of what this would have looked like. Second, Jesus is given nakedness as regalia. Uh, In a couple months from now, uh, now that I've successfully defended my dissertation, and thank you all for your prayers and encouragement, uh, I will graduate with a PhD, and I will get to wear some killer, nerdy graduation regalia, uh, like all the, all the things, right? Like a, the, the cape and the gown and like a colorful thing around my neck and, and all this stuff. But I was disappointed reading the graduation FAQs to learn that I get to keep almost none of it. And in fact, the master's students get to keep more of their regalia than I do, which to me seems totally backwards. Like my degree's more advanced than theirs. I worked harder. I was in school for longer. I paid more money. But that's how we think of this, right? Like, even if it's not graduation regalia, we look at, like, what celebrities wear to the Oscars or the Grammys or the Met Gala. In our culture and in all kinds of cultures throughout history, honor and respect are bestowed through clothing and regalia. What is Jesus given? He's given a purple robe in verse 17, but, of course, that's taken away. And by verse 24, the soldiers have taken off his clothes and they're throwing, rolling dice to see who gets them. Like all other victims of crucifixion, he's nailed to the cross naked. No regalia, no honor, no respect, nothing but shame and ridicule, the least honorable state that a person could be in. Third, Jesus was given a cross for a throne. Human kings and queens are lifted up and seated on these beautiful, massive, physically imposing Seats, chairs, thrones that by their very virtue draw awe and respect and honor from people who approach them. What was Jesus given? He too was lifted up and elevated, but not to be seated on a throne, to be stretched out and nailed to a tree. 
He was not on a glorious throne that drew praise, but on an inglorious cross that drew ridicule. Fourth, Jesus was given criminals for a court. Celebrities tend to surround themselves with other celebrities, people that make them look good. Presidents put people in their cabinet who will help them govern, or more likely who will help them get elected again in four years. Who was Jesus surrounded with? Who were his court? It was criminals. Just before this passage, Jesus was on trial before Pilate, and you remember that Pilate offered to release a prisoner, and the people chose Barabbas, who we're told in verse 7 was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. Barabbas and his company were political insurrectionists. They were political terrorists who opposed the Roman government and tried to overthrow it by force. Barabbas is released, but there's nothing else said about the rebels he was in prison with until perhaps verse 27. A lot of scholars believe it's likely that these two criminals that Jesus is crucified between are the same two murderous political insurrectionists who were imprisoned with Barabbas. Dishonorable company, to say the least, and they were actually guilty of the crime that Jesus was accused of. And finally, and this has been present throughout, Jesus is given mockery for praise. Verse 18, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 19, they were spitting on him, getting down on their knees, paying him homage. That's the Romans mocking him. And then verse 29, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. I said last week that Jesus was falsely Uh, was falsely sentenced by both Jerusalem and Rome, and that represented both the entire Jewish world and the entire non-Jewish world, which is to say the whole world together unjustly sentenced Jesus. Here, likewise, Jesus is mocked by Jerusalem and Rome, by the whole Jewish world and the non-Jewish world, by all of humanity. Thorns for a crown, nakedness for a robe, a cross for a throne, criminals for a court, mockery for praise. What kind of pitiful king is this? What kind of kingdom is he bringing? It's again completely upside down from what we would expect. And this upside downness, I want to argue, works for both our salvation and again our reorientation into the kingdom of God. First, the cross works for our salvation. What does that mean? We've talked in the last several weeks using several different concepts about how Jesus on the cross saves us. Jesus, the true Passover lamb, his blood shed to bring God's people into a new covenant, abandoned by his friends, dying as a substitute, drinking the cup of God's wrath. But here's another, another metaphor, another concept. The death of Jesus on the cross brings us into the kingdom of God. What Jesus was announcing in Mark chapter 1 has come full circle. The Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Colossians that God, quote, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. A few weeks ago, uh, when now the second most recent big windstorm came through Nashville, Uh, Our next-door neighbor had a big tree split and fall down up his driveway. Fortunately, stopped just short of his car. 
didn't touch anybody's house, but it took down a, a line with it. And so we, like the rest of Nashville for a while, were uh, without power. And we did what everybody else does. We reported it to NES. We got on their little outage map. We saw that you know there were like 300,000 people without power. And so we waited. And then later that afternoon, most of the people in our neighborhood had power restored, including Clint, who's smiling at me. Uh, but we did not. And so we checked the outage map again. It's like, okay, 100,000 people. So the first night, we, we knew no trucks had come out. We're like, we're, we're going to be without power. So we tried to make it fun. We had a candlelight dinner. Uh, after the kids went to bed, we prayed that they would be able to sleep without their sound machines. I went up and charged our phones and watched basketball with Clint. And it was, it was kind of a fun night. But the next day was less fun. Uh, we couldn't shower, starting to be kind of smelly. We had to eat out every meal because we'd taken everything out of our fridge or freezer to Clint and Lauren's house. Uh, and it's kind of expensive to eat out every meal in Nashville. So by the time we go to bed on Saturday, the second day, I'm kind of frustrated. We're checking the outage map again. Now there's like you know 15,000 people without power. And still us and like 10 other people right there are lacking power. By day three, I'm completely over it. Uh, Again, the Harrises took care of us. They invited us over for dinner on Sunday evening, and we're walking back up at like 7 o'clock, and what do we see? We see the NES truck, and we see these two guys, like knights in shining armor, with their hard hats on, carrying this long metal pole thing, and one of them goes up to the, to the, the pole that's out, and he like just you know, sticks this big magnetic thing up there and like flips the switch and light comes on everywhere in the neighborhood and immediately applause just erupts from like the 10 houses who are still without power. NES rescued us from the domain of darkness. <laughs> darkness is not convenient. It's frustrating. It's disorienting. Each night, by like an hour after it was dark out, I had no idea what time it was and it felt like I needed to go to bed. You can't see where you're going. You might accidentally hurt yourself. You might accidentally hurt somebody else. This is how the Bible describes what we are rescued from. Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness. How did he do it? He did it by going into darkness himself. Verse 33, which we'll see next week, says, When it was noon, darkness came over the land until three in the afternoon. It's the middle of the day. The sun should be at its peak. But the Son of God is nailed to a cross, dying. And the sun in the sky just stops working. The, the power of the universe just goes out. In the Bible, hell is sometimes described as outer darkness. Jesus underwent the outer darkness to save us. Jesus goes into the darkness to get us. And what happens then? Colossians 1.13, again, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. The kingdom of God, we said back in the beginning of Mark, is characterized by three things. The rule of God, the people of God, and the place where God is. On the cross, the king of God's kingdom died for the enemies of God's kingdom to make them citizens of God's kingdom. Let me say that again. On the cross, the king of God's kingdom died for the enemies of God's kingdom to make them citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus went into the dis disorienting darkness of sin and death and freed us, bringing us under the kind and loving rule of God, making us the people of God and bringing us literally into the presence of God Almighty. Christians are citizens of the kingdom of God today. 
It's not something that starts after you die. We live under his reign and rule as his people in his presence because Christ was willing on the cross to be cast out of his presence. This is our salvation, but it's also our reorientation. This weekend, I flew actually for the first time in a couple of years from Nashville to Kansas City and back to Nashville. And the flights in particular on Friday night were not enjoyable while you all were dealing with that wind. I was up in the air in a plane uh, and it was a little bumpy. But it brought to my mind something, and I think I'm remembering this rightly unless I just imagine this, but when I was a kid, uh, people my age and older can tell me if I just made this up, but didn't we used to applaud when the plane landed? Like, did you guys do we Like, we used to clap, right? Okay. At least some of us did. Bethany's family, my family. Um, like, as if to say, good job, pilot. You got us on the ground safely. Now nobody does that anymore. And I, I guess we just so take for granted that our flights will land safely. But in the early days of aviation, pilots and passengers could not just take for granted that a plane would land safely. Early airplane technology, obviously, was not up to the standard that it is today, and so it wasn't uncommon for pilots, when they came into thick cloud coverage or other sorts of weather events, to lose control of their planes and crash. It was just part of the risk of flying. In 1918, William Charles Ocker, who is known now as the father of blind flying, uh, was testing some early aviation technology, a turn indicator, when he entered into some intense cloud coverage and became disoriented. And he was faced with a situation where his gut was telling him one thing and the turn indicator was telling him something else. And like we would all want him to do in every 21st century movie and book and story, he went with his gut and it almost killed him. His gut was wrong. And this bothered him for years. And eight years later, Ocker underwent a test and what's called a jones Barony chair, which is like the spinning, swiveling chair that's meant to test your equilibrium and balance. And when he sat in the chair with his eyes closed, he discovered that, like most other people, robbed of his sight, he could no longer tell in which direction the chair was spinning. He couldn't tell whether it was spinning. He couldn't tell whether he was right side up or upside down. Now, of course, it's a well-known fact that pilots often experience what's called spatial disorientation, and they lose the ability to know, based on their gut, which direction they're headed and whether they're upside down or right side up. They know now that they have to trust their indicator and not their gut. This whole sermon, I've been saying that the cross of Christ is the upside-down culmination of an upside-down king and an upside-down kingdom, but what if it isn't the kingdom of God that's upside-down? Spoiler alert, it's not. What if the reason that this all seems upside down to us, what if, what if the reason that a suffering Savior who would give his life as a substitute by dying on a cross for people who hated him and rejected him, what if the only reason that seems upside down is because we have the eyes of the world and we have been living upside down? The cross of Christ, the coronation of King Jesus is not only good news for our salvation, it also reorients us. It tells us what life right side up looks like. And here's the thing, guys. I'm afraid that some of us, maybe all of us to some degree, have experienced the salvation that the cross provides, but we haven't yet experienced the reorientation that the cross provides. Many of us in our day today may know, like, yes, I'm a Christian, but what good does that do me you know, Monday through Friday. Like, I, I know it gets me eternal life when I die, but I'm looking at my friends, I'm looking at my family, I'm looking at people around me who aren't believers, and I don't necessarily feel any less anxious than them. 
I don't feel any less stressed than them. I don't feel any less burnt out than them. I don't feel any less exhausted than them. I don't know that I have more hope or joy or peace or self-control or patience. And frankly, the whole like abundant life thing that Jesus talked about just seems like it's on a different planet. Could that be because even though we've been brought into the kingdom of God through the salvation that the cross provides, we haven't yet experienced the reorientation that the cross provides? Could it be that we identify with Jesus, we profess Christ, but in the daily rhythms and routines and habits, we're still flying by our gut and ignoring the indicator? Our indicator is the cross. And when we look at all of life through the cross, it turns everything not upside down, but as we said, it turns it back right side up. And we could think about a thousand different ways that the cross does this for us. I'm going to just give us three And there are three things that we've seen at various points throughout Mark's gospel. First, the cross of Christ turns our view of usefulness right side up. In Jesus' day, there was no one more useless than children. You may remember uh, when we preached on this passage uh, that that people in Jesus' world views kids not as cute and cuddly and sweet, but as a nuisance. They were basically free labor, and until they could provide that free labor, they weren't seen as very useful. And then one day, Jesus, out of nowhere, tells his disciples, you ought to look up to children. You ought to try to be more like them. They know how to live in the kingdom of God. What the world deemed as useless, Jesus propped up as a model for discipleship. And of course, we fast forward back to the cross itself. Could there be anything less useful than a young man with a promising career cut short in his prime, arrested, flogged, stripped, nailed to a tree, mocked and spit on by everybody walking by, abandoned by his friends to die alone? Could there be anything less useful than that? But in God's economy, that useless, eventually lifeless body on the cross became the most useful thing in world history. Because by it, Jesus purchased for God a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and filled them with his spirit and brought them into fellowship with his Father. How does the cross need to challenge your view of usefulness? Perhaps you have the world's view of usefulness and you think of yourself as quite useful. (laughs) Maybe you're the kind of person who's efficient and productive. You're kind of a go-getter. You're drawn to friendship with the kinds of people who look good on your resume, but you're like chronically impatient with people and experiences that slow you down. Let the cross challenge you. You are not defined by your productivity, nor are the people who slow you down. It could be that the most apparently useless things or experiences or people in your life are great in the kingdom of God. And God is using them to conform you more into the image of Christ, to make you great in the kingdom of God. But I imagine for every person in here who needs to be like knocked down a little bit from your usefulness pedestal, there's probably two or three who are on the other end of the spectrum. People who also operate with the world's view of usefulness but don't put themselves in that category. This is the the person who feels like they can't get anything done, who can't get out of their own way, who struggles to accomplish what you set out to do. You feel like other people are waiting for you all the time. You, too, need to look to the cross. Don't let the world define usefulness for you. Let Christ define 
usefulness to you. He says to you, you are filled with my spirit. You're serving others. You're loving others. You're following my footsteps. You're walking as my apprentice on the way of discipleship. There's nothing more fruitful or useful in life that you could be doing than that. Second, the cross turns our view of greatness right side up. You remember when the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest? And James and John uh, come up to Jesus. And in fact, one of, one of the other gospels, it's their mom who comes up to Jesus on their behalf and says, Jesus, can you put my boys on your right and left when you come into your kingdom? You remember what he says? He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Jesus drank the cup on the cross. And if I'm reading this rightly and the cross is his coronation, then on the cross, Jesus is coming into his kingdom. And there are people on his right and left. But it's not James and John. It's people who, like Christ, were crucified. Jesus asked them, do you want to be great? Do you really want to be great? He said, serve other people. For even I, the Son of Man, the divine human King of God's kingdom, the greatest person to ever live, did not come to be served, but to serve others. And I'm going to do it by giving my life for them on the cross. Do you have the world's view of greatness? Again, you may think yourself pretty great, like you may be rocking and rolling, high caliber, like well-paying job, well-behaved kids, nice house, like things are going well for you. But is that greatness? What does the cross say to that form of greatness? Again, I imagine that many of you are on the flip side. You don't feel great. You feel like you're barely scraping by. You want greatness. We all do, right? We long to be a part of something that's significant and meaningful and purposeful. You want your life to matter, but you lay down your head on the pillow at night, and what happened that day? Like a frustrating day at work, a lot of time sitting in Nashville traffic, a bunch of poopy diapers. You want to be great, Jesus says? Serve. Serve other people. Serve your friends. Serve your family. Serve this church if you're a part of it, or or another church. Serve those who can't serve themselves, serve the poor, serve people with the gospel, serve people with your time and energy and effort and money. True greatness, Jesus says, is not in being served, and he modeled this, but it's in serving, and the cross reminds us of that. Third, and finally, the cross turns our understanding of suffering on its head. No society in human history has ever been worse than the modern secular West at dealing with suffering. No society in human history has been worse than us at dealing with suffering. Why? Because every other society has given some sort of redemptive hope to suffering. But what does secularism, the the dominating view in our culture, tell us? The secular story says you and everybody else in this whole universe came from nothing, and you and everybody else in this whole universe are going toward nothing, so all you've got are the 70 or 80 or 90 or 35 years that you're going to live on this planet, so it better be awesome because it's all you've got. No wonder we put so much pressure on romantic relationships, on our health, on our jobs, on how much money we make, on our experiences, on pleasure, because suffering, any sort of event or experience in life that incapacitates us and robs us of our ability to fully enjoy those things, suffering crushes us. It tells us the only shot that you have for meaning is gone. Every other major worldview, religious worldview in history, and every society that's, that's had a sort of religious worldview has given people some sort of redemptive hope and suffering. It's not just Christianity. 
Uh, all, all of these different world religions have seen suffering as purposeful, as redemptive. Say it's going to bring you some kind of gain or reward in the next life, that it's going to be worth it. But Christianity, the thing about Christianity that's unique, is it goes one step further. Because in Christianity, God says your suffering is worth something. It's not meaningless. It's purposeful. And to prove it, I am going to become one of you and I'm going to suffer. Christianity alone says your suffering is not vain and empty. It does not render your life meaningless. It does not need to crush you. Your suffering can produce great good. And I'm going to go first. I'm going to go to the cross and suffer to prove it. And he did. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, not a lesser form of God, not a half deity, but as the creeds say, very God of very God, without losing his divinity, Without mixing his divinity divinity 50-50 with humanity, he added a human nature to himself. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God went to the cross and suffered. And it was the most meaningful, purposeful event in human history. Now, I don't know what everyone in this room's life looks like right now, but here's what I do know. You're either in a season of suffering, or you've just come out of a season of suffering, or you're about to go into a season of suffering. I don't say that to be like morbidly pessimistic. Uh, it's just the way that life works, isn't it? And I, I have the sense pastorally that there's a, a good deal of suffering, a good deal of the suffering in our community right now uh, is related to our families, like relationships with parents and siblings. And, and you may think about that and you may not consider it suffering. You may say, oh, that, like, that's no big deal compared to what other people go through, but God hasn't called you to what other people go through. God has called you to what you are going through. And, and whatever that thing is, the thing that just eats away at your mind and your heart and your gut, the thing that you're thinking about right now, whatever it is, it's okay to call it suffering. Perhaps you're afraid to call it suffering because you've operated with this, this secular mindset that like suffering is meaningless, and so if I admit that I'm suffering, then this season of my life must be meaningless. And I, I want to tell you the cross is calling you to rethink your suffering. Suffering is not pointless. It can be the most productive thing that you ever experience. In Christ, suffering does not have to be avoided. It can be embraced. Suffering makes you like Christ who suffered for you. In Genesis 28, the patriarch Jacob had a dream in which God appeared and spoke to him. And he woke up and he realized, I'm, I'm in a holy place, so I need to do something to mark this holiness. And this seems a little weird to us, maybe, but there was a big stone lying there. And so he took some more oil and he poured it on the stone to mark this as a holy place. And he called the place Bethel, which means house of God. In 1821, when King George IV was coronated as king of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, one reporter of the event told the legend of the coronation chair on which he sat and was anointed and crowned. It was a marble stone chair, the legend goes, that was itself the very stone that Jacob anointed in Genesis 28. It traveled from there to Egypt and into Spain and 700 years before the birth of Christ to Ireland and 300 or so years before the birth of Christ to Scotland. And the fatal stone, as it was called, had, as this reporter wrote, a test of legitimate royal descent. He said it would yield this oracular sound whenever a prince of the true blood was placed upon it. But it would remain silent under a mere pretender to the throne. At his coronation, 
Jesus was not seated upon a marble stone, but he was nailed to a wooden cross. And the cross did not emanate any miraculous song. But the event itself did yield other miraculous circumstances that attested to the certainty that he was, as that reporter said, a prince of the true blood. As we'll see next week, the sky went dark. The temple curtain was torn in two. Even a Roman centurion confessed, this man must have been who he said he was. This man must have been the Son of God. If you have the Spirit of God in you, I have no doubt that when your mind and your heart are drawn to Jesus on the cross, just as that stone would produce that mysterious sound, your, your heart, by the power of the Holy Spirit, starts just emanating this song. Like, yes, I, I recognize Christ on the cross. He is the true king. He's not just the king. He's my king. I know him and he knows me and I want to live in his kingdom. Maybe that's happening now. I know it's a small room. I know we all know each other. But like maybe for the first time, truly, your, your, your heart is singing that song by the power of the Spirit. And, and maybe you're seeing Jesus is the king. He's the one who died to make citizens out of enemies. And I want to live in that kingdom. If so, like if, if you're wrestling with that, talk to us. Talk to somebody. And Christian, as we look to Christ on the cross, the Spirit just draws that song up out of our souls again. We are called to continue looking at him. Guys, we, we don't move on from the cross. If after 10 months at King's Cross you're bored of talking about the cross, I suggest that you find something else to do with your Sunday mornings. We're going to keep on looking at the cross. And as we do, slowly but surely, we will be reoriented to a new way of life in the kingdom. A way of life that is the way we were meant to live and the way, whether we know it or not, we've always longed to live.